This evening, the first is from Numbers chapter 16, which is on page 152. Numbers chapter 16, verses one, um, page 152. Numbers 16. We're going to read verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to move across to verse 16 uh, to 35. Number 16, verse 1. Korah, son of Isahar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and the sons of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them there were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? On to verse 16. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance to their tents. <coughs> Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned, 
The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. We're going to turn now to Jude and read verses 11 to 16. Uh, Jude is on page 1,231. Jude, starting at verse 16. 11. 11. Jude 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Thank you, Sarah, for reading for us. Thank you, David, for for praying for us uh, already. Uh, so, Balaam's error, Quora's rebellion, love feasts, wandering stars, Enoch the seventh from Adam. Welcome back to the book of Jude, everybody. How are you finding it? How are you finding uh, the strange, unusual references, the imagery? Uh, I hope you're not finding it off-putting. I find it quite interesting, intriguing, want to get to know uh, what Jude is writing about. Uh, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, then you'll have picked up that um, uh, Jude is is writing a letter to Christian believers, urging them to contend for the truths of the faith. Uh, These are truths uh, given by the Lord Jesus. There'll be another slide, actually, back one. Uh, David, is there one? Oh, maybe we've missed it. Fighting for the truths of the faith, given by and through the Lord Jesus uh, to the apostles and disciples, then written down in the scriptures for us today. Those are the truths of the faith that Jude is urging his readers to, to contend for, um, because it seems that a number of false teachers, ungodly people, have slipped in to their midst and were distorting that, that message and leading people astray. We, we saw that uh, back in verse 4. So Jude is warning them about the dangers of moving away from the true gospel of Jesus, one where grace and mercy leads not to immorality and, and recklessness, but to thankful repentance and obedience. Remember, as David was saying, this is a strong message from a concerned friend written in brotherly love. And his message is to fight, to fight, to be on your guard against lies, be on the offensive with the truth. But here's the thing about 
fighting. Fighting is exhausting, isn't it? Fighting is wearying. It is tiring to keep fighting, to having to be in a, a constant state of vigilance on your guard, and, and especially so in places where we should feel most secure. Remember, Jude is writing uh, not about threats out there in the world, but here, within the church. Now, I don't know how much you've been affected by uh, news of, of leaders moving away from faithful living and teaching, causing harm to believers. And there's been lots in the Church of England, of course, recently, but stories over the past few years of other pastors around the world, leaders of Christian organizations being exposed for their behavior. Now, when we come up, come up to stories like that, um, especially if we're directly affected, then it can be hugely discouraging. It can make it feel harder to, to persevere, keep fighting for what is right, can't it? Close to home, I expect we, uh, most of us will have seen Christian friends or, or people within our church uh, be led astray by, by wrong ideas about God or, or how he calls us to live. There might be some that we know who've fallen away completely. It's usually upsetting, disorientating, isn't it? And of course, it's tiring fighting spiritual battles within ourselves as we fight sin in our own lives. It can be disheartening when we keep slipping up in the same ways. Maybe we start thinking, well, what's the point? What is the point of keeping going? Well, look, Jude is writing to encourage his readers to keep going. And he's doing so within a context of being loved by God. That's how he started his letter to those who are called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. And today, look, we're going we're to see two motivations to keep fighting. Firstly, Jude draws our attention again to the danger that these false teachers pose. But also we'll see that even though the danger is real and the fight is hard, it's a fight that God will finish. There is an end in sight. It will not go on forever. So let's dive in together. Uh, as we were reading, if you've been here before, you'll have picked up that Jude has uh, quite a distinctive way of writing. Uh, he likes patterns and, and repetitions, uh, illustrations, imagery, uh, all those sorts of things to, to make his point, uh, get his point across. And we'll see all of those things uh, this evening. And we've got a couple of headings that we'll, we'll use to, to go through. Um, we're going through, and Judah's warning against um, those amongst us who, who might cause harm, uh, false teachers, a few individuals. But it'd be foolish for us as we go through not to be checking our own hearts as well. Um, so let's, uh, let's keep those things in mind. And look, here's the first thing. Here's the first reason to keep fighting for the faith, and it's this. Uh, those people amongst uh, who are causing trouble, they have a character that corrupts. A character that corrupts. Just have a look again at verse 11. Uh, Jude starts by saying, woe to them. Now, woe to them is not a, not a phrase we use very often uh, these days. You might get a strange look if you, if you used it yourself. But it's actually language that is used uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Revelation, and by Jesus himself as, as a pronouncement of God's judgment. In a sense, a kind of prophetic word against these individuals. So that is the context in which Jude is writing. And he goes on, did you see in verse 11, to use three Old Testament examples, 
three people uh, whose stories would have been very familiar to his readers. A bit like last week, it might make sense for us to have listed these three people chronologically, in which case Korah should have come before Balaam. But Judas put Korah last, deliberately, as the most serious of his examples. So let's have a quick look at these three characters. We start with Cain. That's their, uh, this is all in verse 11 still. Now, Cain, I expect you may be most familiar with that story. Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, along with his brother Abel. And they both presented offerings to, to God. Now, Abel had given God the first and best of his flock, Cain only a secondary portion of his crops, and only Abel's offering was accepted by God. Cain's was not, and Cain was warned by God to, to manage the, the anger that he was feeling. But of course, he, he didn't, and he went on to murder his brother, the first destruction of a human life. That's Cain. Secondly, we have Balaam. Now, Balaam was a, a prophet that we, we meet in the book of Numbers. He's a slightly kind of funny character who you might know most famously in an incident where a god rebukes him by opening the mouth of his donkey uh, to speak against him. Remember that one? Um, he, he, at times he seems to want to, to preach faithfully and, and does so, but, uh, but what he's actually most known for uh, is for being one who led the Israelites astray. He led them into sexual immorality and idolatry, and he taught people falsely in exchange for money. That's what Balaam is known for. And finally, we have Korah. Uh, Sarah read that reading for us from Numbers 16. Um, He he led a revolt uh, against Moses and Aaron. He was unhappy that the Israelites were still wandering in the desert, having been led out of Egypt. And he was questioning why Moses and Aaron should maintain the authority that they had. And he manages to persuade a group of others to rise up against him, trying to unseat Moses and Aaron from their position of authority. So three individuals, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, three individuals famous for their destructive actions. Uh, but, but look, Jude isn't, he's not just listening to them to warn them about people amongst their gatherings who would be obviously doing things like them. You know, he's not telling them to watch out for, for murderers, for deviants, for revolutionaries. That probably would have been a given. Most of us would look out for those sorts of things. Now, what he's doing, he's warning them against people who follow a similar path. Did you see that? Who walk in the way of Canaan, of Cain, sorry, who join Korah's rebellion. And so to understand then what he's meaning about walking in their way, well, we need to think about their character, what was going on morally in their hearts to act the way that they did. It's something that Jesus does himself a lot in his teaching. He expands things out from the action to the cause. So it's not just adultery that's the problem, it's the lust that's behind it. It's not just stealing that's an issue, it's the covetousness behind it. So I think that's what's going on with these three individuals. So with Cain, the result you have is murder, but the cause, well, it's jealousy, isn't it? Cain couldn't deal with his brother being favored by God over him. And actually, in, in Jewish history, Cain stands as, if you like, the, the father of all those who know God's good and right instruction, but reject it and do whatever they seem right is their own eyes. So that's Cain, jealousy. And for Balaam, the result was, was leading people astray, uh, but the cause was greed, the chance to make some money for himself. 
drove him to neglect faithful teaching. And how about Korah? This huge uprising against people. Well, the cause was pride, wasn't it? They, they thought that they knew better than God, the leaders that he had put in place. So three historic examples in whom we find a character that corrupts not just themselves, but the people around them. But before we get too stuck into Old Testament history, Judah immediately brings it back to their presence in verse 12 by saying that people like that are amongst them right now. Do you see that in verse 12? These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. Love feasts, probably an unfamiliar phrase um, to us, but actually it was, it was a common name for the kind of gatherings that believers had at the time. They're probably kind of smaller scale versions really of what we're doing this evening. Uh, we've been gathering, sharing the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we'd, have, we'd have sung and, and prayed and heard God's word read and, and taught. So Judah's saying that people like Cain, Balaam and Korah are sharing bread and wine with them without the slightest qualm. They're sitting next to them in the pews or the comfy red chairs. They're chatting with them over a cup of tea and a biscuit. And some of them will even have a recognized level of authority. That term shepherds is one common, commonly given to overseers of God's people. So they'll also be in the pulpits, leading small groups, writing the theological books they read. That's sobering, isn't it? But Jews says they're not trying to serve others. They're trying to feed themselves, trying to get what they can from others, trying to justify their own behavior by whatever means necessary. And sometimes it'll be obvious, but often it, it won't be. That, that word in verse 12, that, that blemishes, it, it could be that. It could be blemishes giving a sense of them spoiling something which otherwise is pure. But it's probably better translated as hidden reefs. You know the sort of thing you have at sea, um, something underneath the water, catching ships unawares, running, them, running aground, a hidden kind of lurking threat. So that's why Jude is so keen for his readers, and for us too, to be so discerning about people's character. Knowing people, especially those in authority, well enough to see their lives and, and knowing what makes them tick. The attitude of their hearts directs the course of our lives, doesn't it? And it's why I think Jude comes back to this idea a little bit more explicitly in verse 16, if you just jump on there, when he describes these people again as grumblers and fault finders, following their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Now, these are the sorts of things that are hard to spot in the short term, but reveal themselves over time. Now look, everyone, everyone's sinful, everyone makes mistakes, but, but what course are people on? How do people treat others? How do they view what they have been given in life by God? Grumblers and fault finders is an interesting one, isn't it? It's tempting to think, oh, it's not that bad, is it, grumbling? Maybe it's one of those respectable sins that Deborah was talking about. It's not that bad. We all do it, don't we, in little ways, grumbling about the biscuits, the coffee, the traffic, the weather, our work, our boss. But remember, grumbling was 
was the cause of so much of the trouble that the Israelites got into in the desert, as they quickly forgot the mercy that God had showed them and his promises to, to, to lead them to the promised land. Grumbling and fault-finding. We're not talking about that kind of critical engagement with, with teaching and, and people. You know, there's, there's a good and right place to, to maybe challenge one another, you know, to be challenged ourselves, to try and grow together in love. Uh, but that's not what Jude is talking about here. He's talking about the sort of grumbling that betrays a thanklessness and a forgetfulness of God's faithfulness and goodness to us. Do we see that when sin is left unchecked, it corrupts both ourselves and those around us? So Jude is saying when we, when we feel weary and discouraged in standing firm for the, faith, for the faith, remember the damage that can be done when people veer away from the truth. And at every small moment that we reject falsehood, whether it's something that someone says to us, something we read, or a behavior in someone else that we, we feel tempted to copy even though we know it's not right, but every time we reject things like that, it's a small victory over darkness. It's a moment of, of preserving the faith. It's a moment of protecting believers. It's something that's been going on in the history of the church. It's the, the reason we have things like the creeds that David was talking about earlier, rejecting what is, what is wrong, putting front and center what is true. It's where we got the Reformation. It's where we get all those things that we'll never know until we get to glory, as people stand up for what is right. And we're called to do the same. Every generation is called to do the same. And that is Jude's message for us today. Be wary of character that corrupts. A look, more briefly, here's the second reason to keep fighting for the faith. Jude wants us to know that for those who seek to lead others away from Jesus, condemnation is certain. Condemnation is certain. Now, Jude, in, in verse 12, he continues describing these people uh, using four really vivid images from the realm of nature. They're really kind of evocative uh, pictures that he uses. Maybe just have a look over it again yourself, and I'll read it in a moment. Now, maybe you wonder why. Why is Jude using this kind of language, um, this sort of picture language? Well, it made me think this week of, um, of Miss Trunchbull in the book of Matilda. Maybe we, we watched the film this week, maybe that's why. But look, if you know the story, then Miss Trunchbull, uh, uh, she doesn't like children. She's not the best head teacher you'll ever find. She's a horrific woman. But she doesn't express her dislike of children by saying to a child, you're horrid, I don't like you. No, she does it by calling them a stupid glob of glue, a carbuncle, a blister, a festering pustule of malignant ooze. That's how she describes children conveys quite a lot more emotion, doesn't it, as she does that. Her passions and feelings come out a little bit more clearly. And I think it's like that here with Jude. Now, Jude isn't insulting these, these false teachers, but he does have a, a righteous anger. He has a deep, passionate concern about their influence on his, uh, his readers. And he wants to make us, his, his readers, feel that too. That's what poetry or songs or art, that's what it's for, when words alone won't do. So anyway, look, we have these four pictures. I'm going to read them again and just try to feel their emotional impact as I read them. These people are clouds without rain. 
blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Like, I don't want to say too much about them, but, but did you notice that all of those pictures are of things that are, are damaging? So the, the first, first two uh, you could describe as being harmful by not giving people what they need. So in a place as dry as the Middle East, water is scarce. So rain clouds are, are greeted with joy. But clouds without rain, well, they're, they're useless. They don't give them what they need. And an autumn tree, well, it should bring much-needed fruits and sustenance. And when it doesn't, it can cause people to go hungry. Perhaps a little bit like the idea of shepherds only feeding themselves. The second two, perhaps, you could describe as being harmful by giving people what they don't need. So wild waves of the sea, well, they're dangerous, aren't they? They can send ships off course, send them to their doom, while a steady tide will lead people safely ashore. And and wandering stars. Well, in the days before Google Maps, stars were a crucial way of, of navigating at night. They're fixed points for people to get their bearings. But a wandering star, well, it's going to cause havoc, isn't it? So, so four pictures that are, that are damaging. But did you see as well that though they are damaging, they won't last forever? There will come a point when God deals with them in righteous judgment. The clouds will be blown away. The autumn trees uprooted, twice dead. That is producing nothing good in this life and being condemned in the next. The waves eventually crash upon the shore like the rest and leave nothing but the rubbish of their shame behind. And for the stars, well, blackest darkness is reserved for them and eternity away from God and all that is good where even the brightest of stars is swallowed up by black. And look, if we bring back our three examples from Old Testament history, Cain and Balaam and, and, uh, and Korah, well, we can learn as well from the past about how, in increasing severity, God dealt in judgment with these people. So Cain was cast out of God's presence. He was consigned to restlessly wander the earth. Balaam was opposed in his actions by God and eventually killed in battle. And Korah, as we read, most severely was destroyed along with all of his fellow rebels. See, Jude is writing in such a a graphic, kind of vivid way because he wants us to know with absolute certainty what awaits people who lead, lead Christian believers away from the true gospel of faith, away from Christ. They will face judgment for their actions. And it, it may be that, that God brings about some judgment in, in this life, as he did for those Old Testament characters. And we're seeing that a little bit now. It, it is a desperately, desperately sad thing when we encounter false teachers and, and see the harm uh, they do. But it is also a sign of God's justice and mercy that he exposes these things and brings some to an end because it offers a chance for those individuals to repent and find forgiveness. And they also give us a foretaste of the eternal judgment that is to come for everyone. That's what Jude hammers home in the last couple of verses that we haven't yet looked at in verse 14 and 15. Let me just read those again. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone 
and to convict all of them of the, all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, Enoch was a man we encounter in the, the book of Genesis as a, as a man who walked faithfully with God, an ancestor of Jesus, and one of the very few people in Scripture who didn't experience death. But the challenge, slight challenge for us here is that, is that uh, Jude is referencing a prophecy that he made from another text, not the Bible, uh, that of one Enoch. Now, even though it wasn't a writing that's made it into the Old Testament Scriptures, it was a common text known to and referenced by believers at the time. And look, here's the key thing. Uh, even though the book of One Enoch is not part of our Bibles, and therefore it can't say it's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, by bringing it into his letter, well, this particular verse does take on divine authority, because clearly God in his sovereignty wanted this verse to be known for future generations. So Jude wants us to know with absolute certainty that the Lord Jesus will return as judge of all and to condemn the ungodly. For those who are faithful to Christ, God will keep them and protect them. But for those who turn away, Jesus will come as judge. I guess one of the many challenges of, of fighting, thinking about the, the war in Ukraine at the moment, and there are obviously a huge number of challenges of, of the war, but, but look, one of them is that there is no way of knowing when it's going to end. And there's no way of knowing how it will, will end. It's just huge pressure, isn't there, on, on President Zelensky to, to give in, to try and make peace, giving Russia some territory to call an end to the war. Uh, but he isn't doing, doing it. He's standing firm. But look, that isn't the situation we have as Christians. There is no uncertainty with this battle. The battle has been won already, and the outcome is certain. It's why you can say that these people have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. It's that certain what will come. So fighting for the faith can be wearying. It can be discouraging. But don't lose heart in the battle. Yes, this book is written to warn us against deceivers. Yes, we must be vigilant against sinful desires that so easily corrupt. But it is also written to encourage us that Jesus is in control and that justice will come. So take heart and keep contending for the faith. Like our time is almost up, but, but as we finish, I just want to leave you with a couple of questions, a couple of questions to reflect on uh, for a moment now, and, and perhaps as you chat to people over coffee, coffee and, and uh, a jammy dodger afterwards. Uh, but look, here's the first question. How well do we know Jesus and his gospel? How well do we know Jesus and his gospel? Because the closer we're walking with Jesus, and the firmer grip we have on the truths in his words, well, the less likely we are to be knocked off course. And look, when I say, say the gospel, I sometimes find it helpful to think of that as you can view it through a narrow lens and you can view it through a wide-angle lens. So the narrow lens gospel is that simple message of salvation that, that all of us are called to believe and cling to. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the core gospel truths that they were called to believe and, and how Jesus brings us salvation. So if we know and trust that message, then we know Christ. But look, the wide-angle lens, the wide-angle lens is, is how that gospel bears fruit in our lives, to the implication that knowing Jesus has on the decisions that we make. 
So are we striving to walk with Jesus day by day? Are we being transformed into his likeness? Are we working to proclaim and display his kingdom here on earth? So in both those perspectives, how well do we know Jesus and his gospel? And look, the second thing to think about is what difference will knowing that Christ will judge the ungodly make for us this week? There's lots of ways we could think about that, but what difference will knowing Jesus will come as judge? What difference will that make for us this week? I'm going to give you a moment to to maybe pray and to reflect yourselves, and then David will come back and finish the end of the service for us.